1: I'm constantly telling you that discipline always trumps conviction. I say it over and over and over again. In other words, no matter how much you may love a stock, no matter how enthralled you are with the underlying company, if the rules say sell it, sell, 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 sell. You sell it. One thing I've learned in my investing career, no matter how much you might believe in something, you violate the rules of the road at your own peril. But where the heck do these rules come from? It's not like they were handed down from on high and carved into stone tablets. They're not like the laws of physics. You can't just deduce them from observing the way the market works, the way you can do, say, uh, gravity. No, the rules come from experience, in particular my experience. I've spent nearly 40 years in this business. And in that time, you better believe, I've learned some powerful lessons. In many cases, I learned them the hard way. And because I don't want you to repeat my mistakes, because I do want you to have the benefit of my whole career, tonight I want to lay out some of my most important rules for investing, the stuff I really live by. Now, some of this stuff may seem basic, but again, you forget the rules at your own peril. Back at my old hedge fund where I labored for a long time, I'd occasionally convince myself that it was okay to make an exception, to have a cheat day, to ignore my discipline, just this once for some reason that seemed compelling at the time. And whenever I broke my rules, well, let's just say I got burned. It's like that old joke about the guy who goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I stretch out and shake my hand around, to which the doctor replies, then don't do that. So what exactly should you be doing or not doing, as the case may be? Let's stick down my most important rules for investing, starting with number one. Bulls make money. Bears make money. And pigs, they get slaughtered. Look, I say this all the time because that's because so often in my career, I've seen moments where stocks went up So much that people were intoxicated with their gains. Of course, they thought they were geniuses, too. However, it's precisely at this point of intoxication that you need to remind yourself not to act like a pig. I first heard this phrase on the desk of the uh, old trading desk of the legendary Steinhardt Partners. I'd be having a big run in some stock, and the legendary Michael Steinhardt would tell me that I'd made a lot of money. Perhaps too much money. Maybe I was being a pig. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was just grateful that I caught a major gain. Of course, not that long after, we got a vicious sell-off and I gave back everything I made and then some. That's when I enshrined the bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered, thesis as one of my rules. And now it's so deeply ingrained that I've got a barnyard full of sound effect buttons to tell the whole story as I just did. The bull, the bear, the pig, and of course the guilty. Just to be clear, bulls don't have a monopoly on piggishness. The exact same idea applies to investors who press their bets too aggressively on the short side. We've had some major declines over the years. But other than the dot-com burst in 2000 and then the financial crisis in 2008-2009, systematic risk, most stocks did bounce back pretty quickly. And at this point, you've made a killing if you went long at the lows of 2009. But if you stayed short, if you were a pig who got greedy betting against the market when it was going down, you got slaughtered. Of course, it begs the question, how do you know when you're being a pig? Look, allegedly, there's no such thing as stupid questions, only stupid answers. But honestly, you you don't need me to tell you when you're being a pig. If you didn't feel greedy when we hit an all-time high on the NASDAQ in 2000 after a 3,000-point run in almost no time flat, you don't need an investment advisor. You need a psychiatrist. If you took profits, you sidestepped a huge decline. If you let your winners ride you lost a fortune. The financial crisis is even more stark. If you were walking around owning a huge amount of stock in 2008 as the banks started dropping like flies, you were beyond piggish. Why is this rule so important? It's simple. One of my chief goals is to help you stay in the game. The hardest part of investing is holding on through difficult periods, taking short-term pain so you can have long-term gains. The people who got wiped out by the dot-com collapse, they tend to be the ones who never took anything off the table. Where did they live? House of pleasure. They never felt greedy and their piggishness. Well, they got them slaughtered. Same goes for those who never came back from the financial crisis. Being cautious and ringing the register near tops ended up keeping you in the game. That's why I remind people every day, have you taken out your profit? Have you booked any gains at all? Or are you being a pig? Because you never know when stocks you own are going to really get crushed. You never know when the market could be just annihilated. You can't have certainty. If you assume stocks will keep going up forever in a straight line, I think you're going to be in for a world of hurt. Sure, there will be times when stocks just keep going and going and going. When I coined the term FANG a few years back for Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, which became Alphabet, I love them all, but I gave up on Amazon after an amazing run. Now, it continued to move up and up and up, and I felt, but I, I felt like a pig after the stock's extremely profitable move. But then I felt like a fool when it kept on galloping. It bugged me. But that is the price you have to pay for following these rules. You need to recognize that for every huge pile of cash that gets left on the table with a situation like Amazon, you're sidestepping gigantic losses like the kind you would have had if you had stuck with the market in 2000 and 2008. Experiences that turn two generations of investors against stocks, maybe forever. So never forget, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. And I'll keep on repeating it forever with the sound effects, because it is just that important. Rule number two, hey, it's okay to pay taxes. Look, no one has ever liked paying taxes. But like death, taxes are inevitable and unavoidable. Yet the aversion to paying taxes on stock market winnings often borders on the pathological. So many times people have gigantic gains, but they simply refuse to take any profits because they don't want to incur taxes to cut into the winnings. Wall Street is littered with broken hearts of investors who made this kind of mistake. A couple of years ago, for example, I went to a a presentation from a prominent hedge fund manager who recommended buying the stock of Macy's because of the real estate value. The stock had already run a great deal, and it was ripe for some profit-taking. But I know people who had owned it for years with hefty profits, and they didn't want to ring the register. Why? They would have had to write a check to Uncle Sam. Next thing you know, the stock of Macy's is obliterated, cut in more than half, and it wasn't a two-for-one split. The mall had hit a tipping point courtesy of competition from Amazon. And the darn thing just got crushed. Those who didn't want to share their profits with Uncle Sam ended up with no profit at all. What kind of lesson is that? So make your peace with the tax man. Some gains are simply unsustainable, need to be taken. A profit on paper is not the same thing as a profit in your bank account. Gains can be ephemeral. The last thing you need is to be worrying about capital gains taxes. When it's time to sell, you sell. In short, stop fearing the tax man. Start fearing the lost man. You won't regret it. And I'm not saying blow out of everything. I'm saying take some profits. Bottom line, remember my top two rules. Bulls make money, bears make money, but pigs, and don't be greedy. And a variation in that theme, it's okay to pay the taxes don't be so worried about taking a taxable profit because you may end up with no profit at all. Chris in Ohio. Chris. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Sure, Chris. Good to have you. So my question is, um, we have about $1,000 of disposable income. um, And neither of us have a 401k
2: match with our jobs. So we're, we're basically just trying to figure out. We have, we have a mortgage. Um, we're trying to figure out what would be the best thing to do with that extra $1,000 of disposable income.
1: Well, that's what an index fund is for. I mean, yeah, you can take 10% of that and use it for mad money, uh, buying a, a share of something. And that's okay, by the way. My first stock trades were one share, five shares, seven shares. But you need an index fund to get started until you build up wealth, and then you can do it. How about Giacomo in Illinois? Giacomo. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. Uh, recently on the show, you talked about how first-time investors or younger investors should um, you know, stay away from riskier asset classes until they have $10,000 allocated in right. mutual funds or uh, exchange exchange funds. Yes. Now, my question for you is, seeing you know all these, this crazy bull market that we've got going on, seeing the market ramp, ramp up, seeing cryptocurrencies go up, if I don't have $10,000 invested in mutual funds, What should I be doing? Do I sit around and let opportunities pass and just wait it out and wait till I have my savings? You know, I totally understand. A young person, look, I want people to be able to save. That's my principal goal. If you want to put some money aside, uh, some mad money aside, and do what I think is basically doing some gambling uh, with it, I'm not going to stop you. But the thing that I most care about is getting people to save. If you're saving that way with some risk, as long as you understand the risk, I'm okay with it. But I cannot back away from index funds as the fundament of how you invest. Jeff in California, Jeff. Hi, Jim. This is
2: Jeff at Lake Tahoe. Uh, Thanks to you and your staff for your informative and helpful
1: program. Thank you.
2: Uh, I have a uh, two part question pertaining to interest rates and specifically yield curves. Um, Can you explain to us, uh, home gamers? how uh what a flattening yield curve means and more importantly why did the analysts say when there's an inverted yield curve that it portends a recession coming and the last part of my question is what happens if the 10-year uh, t-bill goes to uh over three percent how will that affect uh the stock market in 2018 and uh Grab your skis and come on out and see us here in Tahoe. Thanks.
1: <laughs> You're very good. I love like Tahoe. I used to play cars on the Nevada side. OK, so I've, an inverted yield curve. Fed has raised rates too high. Rest of the curve goes down out 10, 5, 10, 20 years. Uh, that has uh, that is a curve that has shown in many cases to lead to a recession, but in other cases not. So I'm not, I'm not hard and fast in that rule. I do think that as rates go up, business does slow. That's undeniable. But we are at such a low rate, and business is so strong that we can afford it. Mike in California. Mike.
2: Good afternoon, Mr.
1: Kramer. Mike
2: uh listen two things one first thanks for taking my call number two is thanks for leading us nine to five nine to fivers down the right path
1: to this little extra money that's all i want to do my, thank you
2: here's my question you i know you're, in a, you're you're in a hurry here no, uh, I'm concerning fine. Divi- it's concerning dividends yeah just want to know do you take the money and put it in your pocket or do you put it back in the stocks and if you do how do you make that work, and how do you set that up?
1: Okay, you, you got to do dividend reinvest. You just have to do dividend reinvest. It's just a a, a check off basically, but you have to. Uh, my Chapel trust was not allowed to. Got to give the dividends away, and it's always hurt the performance. I always tell club members, please reinvest. Just take that money because there's nothing like the compounding, of the great compounding that you get, particularly with stocks that have good dividends. All right, remember my first two rules. Bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. Please don't be greedy. Please be disciplined. And don't be afraid to pay the tax man on profits you earn. It's a lot better than riding things to losses. It takes them off the table. Much more Mad Money ahead. I'm putting my nearly four decades of experience to work tonight, counting down the most important rules for investing to help you navigate the market. Stick with crap. Newsflash, at the end of the day, we're only human. If you remember only one thing about being an investor, that's it. Nobody's perfect. Everyone is fallible. And it's inevitable that we're going to make mistakes. It's just the nature of the business and the nature of humans. That's why if you're going to own individual stocks, you need to follow a set of rules, rules that are designed to protect you from yourself, rules that I learned the hard way. And that brings me to my next commandment. And this is a real important one. Never buy a stock all at once. I can't stress it enough. Do not, under any circumstances, buy all at once. Now, no broker likes to fool around with partial orders like I'm telling you to give. No financial advisor has the time to buy stocks methodically over time. The game is to get the trade on at one level in a big way. Make the statement buy. Get the position on the sheets or in the portfolio. But from where I stand, that's all wrong. 100% wrong. You should never buy all at once and you should never sell all at once. Instead, what I want you to do is stage your buys, stage your sales. The term we use on Wall Street is work your orders. Try to get the best price over time and not necessarily in one day. Maybe multiple days. Why? Okay, when I first started out as a professional money manager, I really wanted to prove to everyone just how clever I was and how right I would be. So if I felt like buying Caterpillar, by golly, I'd buy it now. Buy it big. Buy it all at one price because I was so sure I was right. Put me up on 50,000 CAT, I'd scream, which means buy 50,000 CAT, as if I were the smartest guy in the universe. No one could be smarter than I am. I'm doing it big. When I think back about that young Kramer with the mostly full head of hair, by the way, all I can say is that I was one arrogant son of a gun. I was arrogant and I was wrong. What was my mistake? Well, if you want to buy 50,000 shares of Caterpillar, you don't pick them all up at once. It's really dumb. What happens if it goes down immediately? You'll feel like a dope. Thus my rule, never buy all at once. Instead, I should have been buying cat in increments of 5,000 shares. I know it sounds measly if you're a professional, but believe me, I'm right. Buy it gradually over time, trying to get the best price I could. Now you can put it on a small position, then cross your fingers, hope it goes down, so you can buy more at lower levels, get a better cost basis. Now I no longer trade institutionally, and I know people would. The institutional guys are saying, "Jim, come on, fifty thousand is nothing." But you know what? i no longer trade in size, uh, as we'd say, but I still invest. And I invest for my travel trust and you can follow along at ActionLargePlus.com. And whenever we have a new name to tell club members, we buy it in small increments, say 500 shares at a time or even smaller over the course of multiple days. It makes sense. When you buy all at once, you're basically declaring that the stock absolutely won't go any lower. Don't you think that's crazy when I say it, right? No one has that kind of insight. Buying gradually in stages is all about recognizing that our judgment is fallible. So why don't more people do it my way? Why don't investors, if they want 500 shares in ExxonMobil, decide to buy it and say, 100 uh, share increments? I think it's because they want to be big, too. They don't want to waste the broker's time. Your broker wants to get the trade done. I know my brokers hated it, my old hedge fund, when I would place incremental orders like I'm describing. But it's just plain hubris to put a major chunk of your net worth into any stock all at once. Who knows? Maybe it'll go into free fall right after. That's why you need to resist feeling like you're making a statement when you purchase a stock. I bought and sold billions of shares of stock. Billions. Do you know how often I got in at the absolute bottom? How often the last price I paid was the lowest and then it was off to the races? Maybe one trade in 100. I'm pretty good at this game. So resist the arrogance. Buy slowly, even buy over a couple of days. As I tell members of the ActionAlertsPlus.com club, humility beats hubris every time. Next rule, I want you to buy damaged stocks, not damaged companies. Let's say the mall is having a sale and you pick up a piece of merchandise only to find out that it's broken when you get home. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it has a hole in it, some shirt. Uh, in the real world, you can return that merchandise and get your money back. There are guarantees and warranties galore on Main Street. Wall Street's very different. If you buy a stock and it turns out to belong to a defective company, you, you have to eat the losses. Hey, it's a caveat emptier here, right? It's caveat emptier. There's no money back guarantee. That's why you need to be very careful to distinguish between broken stocks, names that are down for no particularly good reason, maybe some macro cause, and broken companies, which absolutely deserve to see their stocks trade lower without you. Sometimes damaged companies can be easier to discern. When Valiant, the big pharma roll-up, started plummeting from the 200s in 2015, a combination of slowing growth, balance sheet fears, and some chicanery with one of their pharmacies, it wasn't a good sale to rush toward. Valiant tumbled from 262 down to the single digits before it bottom. A lot of people thought Valiant was worth buying at 150, then 100, then 50. It was like an auction going down. But the ongoing problems at the company meant that the stock was downright toxic. On the other hand, sometimes the stock will sell off for reasons that have nothing to do with the underlying company. It could be caused by ETFs or problems overseas. Washington worries. Greece! Just because the stock is down, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with the actual business. So how do we distinguish between a broken company and a broken stock? Complicated question. What I like to do is develop a list of stocks I like very much. I call this my bullpen in the Plus.com club. When Wall Street throws a sale with the whole market coming down, I use that as an opportunity to pick up the stocks on my list that was designed in a cooler moment with a cooler head. But the bottom line is that you never really know. And that's why this rule works in tandem with the last one. You never buy a position all at once because what you think is merely a damaged stock might turn out to be a damaged company. If you take your time, you're much less likely to end up with a large quantity of broken merchandise. Stick with Framer.
0: This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps.
1: If you want to build a portfolio of individual stocks, a big if, since there's nothing wrong with getting all of your equity exposure from a cheap index fund that mirrors the S&P 500, you got to be rigorous about it. Which brings me to my next rule. Do the homework. Listen, growing up, my kids hated doing the homework. They thought it was punishment. Sometimes when I looked at what they were studying, I have to admit that I found it pretty easy to sympathize with their point of view. What's the relevance of most things they teach in high school? How will it help you later in life? Why even bother? Of course, that's a terrible attitude I just I just really should take that back. But as a parent, I'd always encourage my kids to study because you never know what you'll turn out to be interested in later in life. But I bring this up because I think that many of you have the same attitude to the homework you need to do for stocks. You suspect it might be just as irrelevant to your portfolio as schoolwork seemed to be to my kids. When I tell people that they need to listen to the Starbucks conference call, for instance, which is really a good one, or they know what the analysts are expecting from, from Netflix, which is always about subscriber growth, if they're going to own these stocks, they, they don't want to hear it. They think I'm being a scold. They just want to own them. They don't want to have to do anything. When I remind people that doing the homework means listening to the conference calls, reading research reports, they really want no part of it. They look at me as I'm some sort of old-fashioned teacher, a school mark who's asking for way too much in this busy 21st century world. That's just plain wrong, people. Owning stocks without doing the proper research, I regard it as just plain lunacy. You never want to do that. They know nothing! But people still do it. And they do it for a couple of different reasons. On the one hand, there's the buy and hold school of thought. The idea you don't really need to keep track of what's happening at the company because you're in it for the long haul as if that somehow makes it all OK. On the other hand, you've got people who just don't have the time to be that diligent. For those of you who don't have the time, I've got the solution for you, OK? Either get someone else to manage your money or do the smart thing and invest in a low-cost S&P 500 index fund. If you can't devote a few hours a week to your portfolio, you really shouldn't be messing around with stocks. But it's the buy-and-hold premise that's a lot more pernicious. Back during the 1990s, buy-and-hold became the be-all and end-all of investing. You know what? I am just going to hold on to that CMGI. You got to look that one up. You got to Google it. Because it has got to go back to 100 where I bought it. Oh, man, I could substitute vertical net. I I got 100 companies I could put in that sentence. Yep, the experts say that if you hold things for the long term, isn't everything supposed to work out for the best? Of course, this philosophy took a real blow during the financial crisis when so many people who practiced buy and hold got wiped out. That's why I've always been evangelistic for buying and homeworking. What is the homework? Before you buy a stock, you should listen to the conference calls. You have to, okay? That's the minimum. You can go to the company's website. You can read the research, read some news stories, Google the darn thing. Everything's available on the web. Everything. You have so much more available now, so much more knowledge, that there really is no excuse. You aren't up there begging at the Goldman Sachs Library for some microfiche statements from three months ago. Remember those, like, plastic sheets? Well, that was ridiculous. You got all this stuff right at your fingertips. But if you fall back on the buy and hold strategy for any group of stocks and don't pay attention, I can assure you, that you'll be soundly beaten by professional managers with good track records who are actively searching for high-quality stocks all the time. More to the point, I'm quite certain that any index fund can beat someone who does does no homework. It's not a strategy. It's just being lazy. The next rule is another essential that I harp on constantly. Diversify, diversify, and then diversify some more. Always be diversified to control risk. Listen, I'm a firm believer in the idea that if you control the downside, the upside will indeed take care of itself. And controlling the downside means managing risk. What's the biggest risk out there? Sector risk. Stocks in the same sector, they tend to trade together, especially at extreme moments. Do you know that about 50% of the action in a given stock comes down to its sector? In some of these areas, because of ETFs, it's even higher. I don't care how great a tech stock was in 2000. If you had all your eggs in that one group, you just got scrambled. Same thing with financials in 2008. Oils, 2014 through 2016, and there's only one thing you can keep uh, keep you from getting nailed by this sector risk, and that's diversification. That's why we play this game of mi diversified. I've been playing it since 2002. I always like to say that diversification is the only free lunch this business. People make fun of me in the office because I say it so much, but it's the only investment concept that works for everyone. If you mix up enough different sectors in your portfolio, at least five, you won't be wiped out when one group gets obliterated. Something that happens far more often than you think. But if diversification is so obvious, if it's such a no-brainer, if every advisor and commentator under the sun has been telling people to do it for years, how is it that anyone can still be undiversified? I think it comes back again to the homework issue. A lot of people simply don't know what they own. They couldn't tell you if you bumped into them. So they end up with stocks that are frighteningly similar without even knowing it. I still feel quite a few calls from people who genuinely think that owning Fang is a diversified strategy. Hardly. With Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet, you own variations of the same thing, social, mobile, cloud. They trade together. That's what I call faux diversification. Or another example, no matter how much I might like the oil stocks in any given moment, it's usually wrong. I can't count as a portfolio made up of Exxon Mobil, Chesapeake Energy, and Halliburton. I always say no to a portfolio, by the way, of I'm equal opportunity disliker, J&J, Eli Lilly, Bristol Myers, and United Health. even as I like all four. They just leave you way too exposed to healthcare risk that could overwhelm the whole group all at once. Having an undiversified portfolio is not just an amateur mistake, though. Many professionals don't like to be diversified because of the bizarre way that money management it works in this country. If you concentrate all your bets in one sector and that sector takes off, you'll be pretty much everybody who's diversified out there. That's the nature of the beast. A hedge fund manager who does that and gets lucky can then market himself as a huge success, get profiled by every magazine, raise tons of capital from unsuspecting investors who don't realize how much risk they're really, truly taking on. Here's the bottom line whether you're an amateur or a professional, you always need to do your homework and keep your portfolio diversified. It may not be exciting, it may not be sexy, but this is the kind of routine maintenance stuff that protects you from monster losses down the line. Mike in South Carolina. Mike. Hey, Jim. It's Mike, the veterinarian from South Carolina. Again. Thank you for calling. I was just wondering, you know, if I'm a new investor, say I'm going to invest about $100,000, what, how many stocks should be my portfolio? I started with about 30, and I just feel I don't know if that's a lot or not enough. Well, I would tell you that after 10, you're kind of a mutual fund. Now, look, if you're a real stock junkie like I am, you can take on a lot more. And if you have help like I do uh, for the Action Alerts Club, then it's really not that bad. But 10 is about the maximum that most people can do. So don't do more than that uh, because you won't be able to do the homework. Let's go to Roberto in Texas, please. Roberto.
2: Hi, Jen. Hey, uh, yeah. <laughs> We are uh, it's a great day here
1: I just had a question about. Um, well, because I'm a new investor, I'm 29. I got about, you know, small amount, about $1,500, um, and I'm wondering how I should invest it in either an index fund or S&P 500 in an ETF index fund. fund. Plain and simple, $1,500 first, $10,000 index fund, no matter what. Then you can start doing some mad money. Don't forget, index funds keep you diversified, and we like to diversify, diversify, diversify. Sure, homework isn't fun, but you know what? Losing money's worse. You want to avoid monster losses. Homework and diversification are key. So stick with Kramer. Look, I don't want to go all zen in the art of portfolio maintenance on you, but when it comes to managing your own money, you are often your own worst enemy. Don't take it personally. I'm my own worst enemy too. What do I mean by that? Okay, if you want to invest wisely, you constantly need to be fighting off your own worst impulses. We're not robots. We have emotions, and those emotions can really throw you off your game. That's why the theme of tonight's show is that discipline trumps conviction. You obey the rules so that you do the smart thing, even when your emotions are telling you to do the opposite. Which brings me to my next rule for investing. Nobody ever made a dime panicking. (laughs) Yet panic, you should repeat after me, frankly. It's not a strategy. Panic is not a strategy. Yet you see it over and over again as if it is. A stock gets hammered. Then investors sell after the hammering. The market gets crushed on a huge day. People bail at the end of the day. In short, something gets annihilated and people can't take the pain. So they bowl. Sell, sell, sell. Panic is the operating instinct in all of these cases. There's something basic and instinctive about panic, about the desire to flee. If you're a Stone Age hunter-gatherer who accidentally stumbles into a family of grizzly bears, well, panic can be pretty helpful. But uh, it tells you to run away. But it's not a useful emotion when it comes to analyzing the stock market, where you're running away when maybe you should be running toward. The truth is there will almost always be a better time to sell than in a panic, a better time to leave the table than whatever moment inspired you to panic in the first place. And don't I know it. Back in 2010, I was on the air for the flash crash when the market fell 900 points in less than a half hour. I watched the monitor for the ticker, the crawl that's underneath the picture, and I couldn't believe what was happening. People were dumping stocks simply because everyone else was dumping stock. They didn't even know why they were dumping it. And that's what a panic looks like. That's textbook. I urge viewers right there on the set to pick a stock they loved and buy it using limit orders so you wouldn't have to accept a price you didn't like. The result? To this day, people still come up to me and thank me for that advice during the flash crash. But I simply put my rule into practice, realizing that nobody ever made a dime panicking, and then I tried to help you profit from it. I did the same thing back in 2016 when we had a 1,000-point sell-off over two days. I told people to buy down but only using limit orders, and that's what we did for the charitable Trust, which you can follow by joining the ActionLordsPlus.com club. We got outstanding buys simply because we stayed calm and took advantage of everyone else's panic. So the next time there's a big market-wide sell-off and you feel like fleeing and never touching a stock again, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take the opposite side of your emotions, the opposite side of the trade. When you see one of those high-speed routes of a sector or even individual stock, why not buy a little? Get a feel for it. See what I mean. The most rewarding trades you can make are those where the decks have been cleared out by terrified folks Using market orders, sell, 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 who they don't get that the exit doors aren't as big as they think they are. Mind you, I'm not absolutely saying that Well, you just buy every stock, every panic, every sell off, Uh, they're not all worth buying. Often when people freak out about an individual company, it could be with good reason. But I am saying that it's a rare moment when you won't get some sort of bounce after a big decline. So the next time you want to dump everything, take a deep breath and wait for the rebound before you sell rather than rushing to join the fleeing masses. You could get trampled. Hey, speaking of hideous down days, I've got another rule that can help you handle big declines. Ready? When the stock market gets unrelentingly negative, remember that he who defends everything defends nothing. Now, it was true when Frederick the Great said it 250 years ago, and it's just as true now. Granted, he was talking about battle plans, and we're talking about portfolio plans, but the point stands. So he who defends everything defends nothing. What exactly does that mean? It's about how you evaluate your holdings. When the market's flying and many stocks are in bull market mode, you don't need to worry about most of your positions. more exposure to the bull, the better, right? But when things get more difficult, when you're on the defensive, you need to recognize that many of the stocks you bought during better times might not fit the new environment. In short, when the economy's slowing and the market's getting slammed, you can't hang on to everything you might want to own. If you try to defend all of your positions in a market that turns against you, that's a recipe for you to be get blown out of the stock market, and when I say defend, I mean you can't treat a declining market like it's a buying opportunity in every single stock in your portfolio, and you just keep chipping away. If you do that, you'll quickly run out of capital. Anyone would, leaving you unprepared to buy more if we do go lower. Maybe even appreciably lower. Yep. When the market gets negative, you need to get more selective, focus your efforts. That's why I rank all my stocks at all times for my ActionAlertsPlus.com club members. Ones are stocks that I'd buy right now. Twos are stocks I'd buy in a weakness. Threes are stocks I'd sell, maybe into strength. That way, I'll know which stocks I should defend when things get tough. I make this plan not in the heat of battle. And then I, I know which ones to cut or use as sources of capital to buy the ones. Let's say tech's getting hammered, but you think it's going to rebound. It's important that you don't try to hang on to the whole complex. Pick the best tech stocks that you'll want to buy into weakness. Toss out the rest to raise cash. Use those newfound cash reserves to buy the stocks of higher quality tech companies at lower prices. That's right, the non-essentials, the ones that have no catalyst and you only own because you wanted exposure to a bull market, they get the heave-ho immediately when things turn bearish. Karen Kramer, who worked with me for years at my old hedge fund, used to call this circling the wagons around your best names. The first few times you do it, you'll curse yourself because you might end up slaughtering stocks that you've owned for quite some time. But eventually, after you experience a number of rough markets, you'll realize just how valuable this process is. Because over time, you'll end up with great cost bases on the stocks you really like. The bottom line, great investors know how to ignore their emotions when those emotions get in the way of making money. So the next time the market gets slammed, don't panic. Nobody ever made a dime by panicking, but also don't double down just with your eyes closed and the whole portfolio in the weakness. Vicious negative markets can give you buying opportunities, but you need to focus your capital on your absolute favorites rather than chasing bargains in lower-quality merchandise when it turns out they weren't bargains at all. Rich in New York, Rich! Hi, Mr. Kramer. Uh, It's a pleasure. How are you? Could you please explain... I'm good, thank you. Could you please explain uh, the technique of buying calls and if it could be or should be used by us home gamers to boost or pad our por- por- portfolios. Hey, look, it's a great question. The Nigerian brothers, I don't know if you've ever seen them. They've done some fabulous work on options, and there's also options actions on Friday afternoon. They are—they can be a low-risk way to be able to limit your exposure. And if you get the book, Getting Back to Even, I have a 100-page exposition of how to use calls to limit your uh, downside and get maximum upside exposure, Getting Back to Even. David in California, David. Booyah, Jim Kramer. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad you called. Thanks. Uh, All right, so quick question. For millennials who are somewhat knowledgeable about the market, where should they invest their money other than fangs? Well, you know what? There's a lot of different FANG-like names in all sorts of different uh, industries. For instance, I like aerospace. That's a long-term bull market. Maybe you get something in that group. I like a a little bit of foreign exposure. And I think that that's such a bad idea. Maybe an ETF that has Europe because Europe is way behind where we are and will be that way for multiple years. And then I think that, you know what? If you're really young, why not look at some riskier biotech stocks? Got your whole life to make that money back. All right. Remember, emotions have no place in investing. They get in the way of making money. So the next time the market gets slammed, please don't panic. Nobody ever made it done by panicking. Sellers can give you huge opportunities. Buy, 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 buy. But you need to do your homework. Don't chase. And don't buy damaged merchandise. Just damaged stocks. Mad Money's back after the break. Welcome back to tonight's Check Yourself Before You Wreck Yourself edition of Mad Money. I'm a big believer in the idea that once you get some money saved up, you are in control of your financial destiny. But that also means you need to be very careful because you're the one with the most power to derail your financial future. Look, mistakes always be part of the investing game. You can't rule them out. You can't outlaw them. I just want to be sure uh, that you don't make the same mistakes twice or three times or endlessly, for that matter. And that's why I have rules. Rules for investing to protect you from the kind of misjudgments that I used to make when I was young and inexperienced. Rules like, for example, don't own too many stocks. Buy, 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 buy. Back at my old old hedge fund, I would spend three hours every day analyzing the mistakes of the day before. (laughs) And you wonder why I retired, made myself sick to my stomach every single day. That was my major task, one that i complete every morning before anyone else came into the office. i do it generally between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. Some people are night owls on an early morning. Out. I would analyze every losing trade. You don't need to analyze the winners. They take care of themselves. I'd try to figure out how I could have made more money or, much more importantly, lost less money. I was, for lack of a better word, maniacal about it. And after a couple of years, I had an epiphany. I realized that good performance could be linked directly to having fewer positions. In short, when we owned fewer stocks, we tended to make more money. It was just axiomatic. And that's why, ever since, I won't buy a stock without first taking a different one off the table. And I try to do that for my charitable trust, which is the only way you really can do it these days. You don't just buy shares in more and more companies. You need to limit your holdings. That's a great discipline and one you should adopt pronto. All the bad money managers I know of have hundreds of positions. They can't keep track of those. I don't know how the heck you're even supposed to yeah, stay on top of uh, more than 30. All the really good money managers have a few names that they know inside out, which means they can buy confidently on the way down when the market goes awry. That's why I say don't own too many stocks. Now, I know it can be constraining. You'll end up selling some stocks that are good for stocks that aren't as good. I know that. Uh, hindsight's is 20, 20 But take it from me. As someone who's owned stocks for 40 years, it's far more likely that you'll be selling marginal companies in order to get bigger in better ones. That's how to make a portfolio really work for you. That's portfolio management. You don't want to be a mutual fund manager, right? You might as well give it to an index fund. By the way, the time I lost the most money as a hedge fund manager, my sheets, my positions, were thick as a brick. When I made the most money, my sheets were, well, one sheet of paper double space. And I ran hundreds of millions of dollars. So please remember... Whether you're a pro or an amateur, it's almost always possible that you have too many positions. Rule of thumb, if you're just investing for yourself and you own more than 10 positions, that's right, if you own more than 10 stocks, maybe you ought to pare back a bit. So you can have too many stocks, but you know what it's very hard to have too much of? Cash. Which brings me to my next rule. Cash is for winners. The widespread aversion to cash in this business breaks my heart. At times, cash is such a perfect investment that it drives me crazy how so so few people recommend it. Nah, they hate the market, so they're only 95% long instead of 100%. Or they think the market stinks, so they decide to short a few high flyers against their longs or positions they own. No, no, and no. As an investor, that is absolutely the wrong way to approach things. You don't like the market? You don't like any sectors? Then sell stock, raise cash! Don't buy put options on the stocks you own or find other stocks to short against your current current positions. The odds simply do not favor you winning on both stocks, the short and the long. It's a strategy whose goal is mediocrity. But if you can raise some cash and put it to work at lower levels, that's the best way to protect yourself against a lousy market. Let me tell you a little story. Now, I was one of the biggest option traders on Wall Street for a time. And I can tell you that when I bought put options to hedge my positions, I almost always ended up losing money. When did I make money? When I bought put options to profit from low quality companies that were going to have, I thought, shortfalls or stocks that seemed hopelessly overvalued versus the fundamentals. If you dislike the market, you don't need to bend yourself into pretzels to hedge against downside risk, though. Just sell some stocks and go into some cash, which is literally short term treasuries of less than a year variety. People start talking about how little cash earns, although it's sure earning more than it did uh, a while ago. Or they say, can't be in cash. That's for losers. No, cash is for winners, especially if you think there's a major disaster ahead or the market's going to have a prolonged sell-off. Now I grew up in a different time. I only shorted when I had an edge. I can't short it all right now by contract, not even for the Chatable Trust. But back when I could, I didn't short stocks for the sake of having some shorts on against the longs. I don't care about not having enough exposure. I care about not losing money. So if you don't like the market, if you think there's nothing compelling to buy into any weakness, I suggest that you sell stock and raise cash. Go sit on the sidelines. Nothing nothing wrong with that. Wait for the situation to improve. Believe me, it's never the wrong call when you don't like the tape or you can't find anything that truly makes sense for you. The bottom line, always be careful not to own too many stocks and not to have too little cash. Stick with Kramer. Tweets are piling up. Holy cow. Let's start with one from Quentin, who asks, at Jim Kramer, at what age should I put bonds into my retirement account? Currently, stocks and ETF mutual funds at 25 years old. Slash mad tweets. Okay, I don't want bonds until very, very late. I like to uh, actually extend it a little here and say that not until you are in your late 50s do I want to start seeing a lot of bonds. Why? Because people live longer than they used to, and bonds don't generate enough return. About higher yielding dividend stocks. That's what I go with. Moving on, could a at Germano Franzani be one of our next producers? He says at Jim Kramer, mad twats, mad tweets, mad whatever. I would like to see from you a show titled "Typical Errors of Emotional Investing." Well, that's a great idea, and I'm going to do it because I do know that over and over again, emotional investing produces major mistakes that lead to big losses. you got to check them at the door, and I will do that for you. Another tweet, this one from Steve Daniels, who says, uh, at Jim Kramer, booyah! What other types of index funds do you recommend besides one that mirrors the S&P 500? Mad tweets. Okay, there is a place called Vanguard, and Vanguard's terrific, and they have a thing called the Total Return Fund of all stocks. That one is one of my absolute favorites. Stick with Kramer.
2: The earnings are relentless. But Kramer has burned the midnight oil, and he's ready to run the gauntlet. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss.
1: I like to say there's always a bull market summer, and I promise you i to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and see you next time.